This episode is brought to you by Goalie. Did you know the University of Michigan did a study that found over 80% of apps for kids are designed to lure them into longer gameplay and more in-app purchases? Goalie decided it was time for this to end. Unlike the Kindle and iPad that have endless ads and potentially dangerous content, Goalie is a tablet with only apps that build independent kids. It has no web browser, no social media, and no ads, ever. It has award-winning learning apps like Khan Academy, Duolingo ABC, and Starfall, and the best part? It's completely parent-controlled. In my house, we use Goalie's kids' calendar to teach my son how to stay on task. He learns life skills, like how to make a sandwich, by watching one of the hundreds of video classes and can practice it by following along with one of the 50 pre-made routines. As a dad, there's no better feeling than knowing that my son is becoming more independent every day. For more information and to try Goalie risk-free for 30 days, visit getgoalie.com. That's G-E-T-G-O-A-L-L-Y.com and use the code THEAUTISMDAD to save 10%. Welcome to the Autism Dad Podcast. I'm Rob Gorski. This show is inspired by my own personal journey as a full-time single dad raising three autistic kids. It's all about special needs parenting, the challenges we face every single day, as well as some of the things we have to learn to navigate along the way. This season, we're going to put a major focus on empowering and educating parents. We're going to talk all about building a community of support around your family, the importance of self-care, as well as connecting with services and resources that are vital when it comes to raising a child with special needs. So be sure to check us out at listen.theautismdad.com, subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. On this week's episode of the Autism Dad Podcast, we are going to have a conversation with Dr. Whitney Caceres. Uh, Dr. Caceres was on the podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, she's an accomplished author. She is a pediatrician. She's an expert in public health, and she's an autism mom. Uh, we are going to take on your top 10 questions about sleep and sleep hygiene. I had brought this up during one of my recent Facebook Lives, and you know I pulled the top 10 questions that I received, and I tried to keep them as universal as possible so that they could help the greatest number of people. Uh, and then we have three questions at the very end that are specifically related to melatonin. So there's 13 questions altogether. And Dr. Caceres took a lot of time to, to really kind of dive into some of this stuff to really try and help you understand, not only from the perspective of a pediatrician, but also the perspective of a mom who deals with these same things uh, at home herself. So great insight. She's the perfect person to have this conversation with. Thank you all for submitting your questions. Thank you for taking the time to tune in. And I really hope this helps. Uh, please enjoy the interview. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show. Uh, we had a really good conversation was two years ago, I think, maybe yeah. something yeah. like that. Could you take a minute and just kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about like who you are and, and what you do? And then uh, we're going to talk about or we're going to answer a bunch of listeners sleep related questions. Absolutely. So my name is Whitney Caceres, Dr. Whitney Caceres. I am a pediatrician and public health expert by training, but I am most deeply invested in that relationship between a parent's well-being and a child's well-being. I have my own child who has autism and another child who has a lot of other uh, you know, letters in the alphabet after her name as well, some OCD and ADHD. So I'm a mom to two kids who are quite requiring. And that has taught me so much as a pediatrician about how to care better for my patients, but also about that connection between how I'm doing and how my kids are doing and how 
even though I can't control, you know, all the cards that are dealt me in life or how my kids are doing every single moment, I can control a lot about how my perspective is around that. And so to that end, I actually started a platform called Modern Mommy Doc. And I coach one-on-one moms, working moms a lot, but also moms who are staying at home or have unpaid labor that they're doing at home on really how to eliminate more stress, how to stop that cycle of doing everything for everyone, then snapping at their kids when they don't want to, raging at their partner if they have one when they don't want to, feeling terrible about it. And then doing it all again. So really the goal is to stop that cycle, get people to more of a place where they feel like they're the person, the parent that that they always kind of were meant to be. So I do one-on-one coaching and then we have an app that's associated with it as well. And I'm on Modern Mommy Oh, that's app. new. Yeah. Yeah. We have a new app. Congratulations is, on that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. You know, the app is awesome because we have so many lessons that I've created. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this for like mm, six years, seven years. And we have so many lessons that we created on boundaries, on how to really help kids with sleep, on how to help them with their emotions, on all the things I know as a pediatrician um, about nutrition, on managing life with a partner, but it doesn't all fit into a coaching session of how to do that with someone. So when people come into the coaching, actually they get access to the app where then there's an entire library of information that they can access. So, so it's like um, a one-stop cool resource for them. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that's really cool. Because I think the last time the last time you were on, we were talking about uh, the Working Mom Blueprint. I think, right? Yes. So I have two books um, with the American Academy of Pediatrics. One is called the New Baby Blueprint. That one's for like parents of very, very new little babies. And then okay. the more relevant one, probably to your listeners, is called the Working Mom Blueprint. Again, relevant for even people who have unpaid labor that they're doing at home. Um. And that one is, it doesn't go through my framework that I use specifically at Modern Mommy Talk, but it does a lot of the explaining from the practical standpoint of a mom who's also a pediatrician of if I were to really hone in on like, what are the things I actually care about the most for your kids? You can skip the rest, all the messages you're getting from the world. What would they be? And then I have a new book that's coming out in February, but I can't tell you the title yet because we're like finalizing the subtitle. But yeah, new book that's with um, Quarto Publishing. So I'm excited about that. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I had so much positive feedback from the last episode uh, that you were on because, you know, you you're in kind of a unique situation where you you live in both worlds. Yeah. And I think that's so important, especially when you're dealing with like uh, a clinician because there's a there's a difference between, you know, going to a, a doctor who like maybe treats kids that happen to be autistic mm-hmm. and then either a mom or a dad or even a aunt and uncle, like whatever the situation is, when, when it when it touches their lives, they have like this. It's it's just uh, it's more relatable, I think. Yeah. And, I, and, and it really does make a difference. And so there was there were lots of positive feedback from that. So yeah, I appreciate uh, when that. when when people were started asking about sleep, you were the first person I thought of. I was like, Oh, we need to see if you can come on and and help navigate uh, some of the sleep hygiene stuff because that's a big challenge for a lot of people. It's funny because actually, I mean, the first chapter of the new book to get like a sneak peek actually goes through the story of me at the occupational therapy office with my kiddo. 
Mm-hmm. She has autism and she was nervous to go and she's there. And it's like the one hour that I get a week where I like look forward to sitting in that little like one way facing mirror. Where, like I can see them, but they can't see me. And I'm in there doing work yep. and like, you know, relaxing really, you know, like, might as well have a cocktail, I'm, like really relaxing in there. And about 20 minutes in, the OT comes in and she goes, you know, McKenna has something really important to tell you. She just couldn't wait. Now, McKenna, go ahead. Be brave. Tell your mommy. This is like such a big deal. And McKenna looks at me and she goes, I just want to let you know that because you work, I feel like you don't care about me. And I really feel like I don't like, I don't get much attention from you. And I was like, what is going on? And the OT is like, I'm so proud of you, sweetie, for saying this. And so, you know, I just took it. I'm like, okay, you clearly don't understand like a, the work I do B, like how invested I am in my kid and wanting to make sure she thrives and see how it's really important that I work. Like I, for me personally, this is not true for every single person, but like for me, I have to have an outside outlet. I believe actually Mm -hmm. every parent should have an outside outlet if it's working or gardening or community service, like whatever, you know what I mean? That's outside your kid. And so we leave the OT office and I say to the lady, you know, like, Hey, um, I'll be in touch. You know, with some like feedback on this. And I go outside and my daughter's like, what is that about? Like, I mean, I want to hear your feelings if that's actually how you feel. You know, let's talk about it. And she goes, Oh, mommy, I was reading a book the other day and it was talking about a mom that goes overseas and she's never with her kids because she's on a sailing adventure. And so I was telling that to my OT. I was like, Oh, Lord, like, I can't win. So, you know, just that example of like moms and parents feeling so much pressure, like from all sides and feeling like it's all their fault all the time. And so the book really is about like just this idea of, man, unless you're really like really screwing it up, most of the time, the things that are happening are not your fault. And here's some things you can do in light of what's happening in society for, for moms in particular. You know, it, it's so funny how kids especially kids like ours who just view the world in this different way and mm-hmm. will, will experience something like that and then sort of like almost transpose it into their own lives. Yes. And it really has totally. nothing to do with anything. We, we had my, my youngest, we used to have this joke when he was little uh, because he was so sensory sensitive when it came to food. Mm-hmm. And so like he would have like three or four things that he would eat. And then he was so indecisive that I mean, you really couldn't even, you almost couldn't give him a choice on things because he would just, it would just overwhelm him. Yeah. And so we would, you know, you get frustrated as a parent and maybe it's not like whatever, but, uh, it was, <laughs> there were times where he'd be like, okay, Emmett. So like, do you want chicken nuggets or do you want to eat out of the cat litter box? Like trying to like get him to understand, like, yeah, just the concept of, choices. Mm-hmm. And, and so he would always laugh. We'd, you know, he'd laugh and we'd goof around about it. We went to a restaurant one time and he ordered, like he, he just, he just ordered whatever he was going to get. And he ordered it right away. And like, there wasn't any of this back and forth or frustration yeah. or whatever. And he's like, the waitress is there taking the order. He's like, looks like I don't have to eat cat litter today or so- something to that effect <laughs> yeah, exactly. in front of, in front of the waitress. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, okay, there's a story to that. It's not the way that, <laughs> but it's like he, the way he says it mm-hmm. was like, like we, we would feed him out of the cat litter box or yeah. something like it, it just, it's crazy. Our yeah. kids are amazing. And, <laughs> but like, those are those memories that like, you'll kind of 
file away, you know, and then laugh at sometime. Like I laugh at it now, but I was horrified. I was yeah, horrified it's like moment. a bad parent, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, this person is judging me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So let's, let's talk about sleep. So I have uh, 10 questions, like general questions about sleep that I have received from parents. And then we have three questions about melatonin, which is sort of the common, probably the most common, like assistive thing that we can give our kids to help sleep. Mm -hmm. So the first question, and, and I tried to put them in an order that sort of made sense, but whatever. All right. So the first question was, you know, how much sleep does my child need at like different ages? Like as they get older, do they... Like, how does that amount of sleep that they need change? Yeah. So definitely as kids get older, the amount of sleep that they need changes and gets less. So when your kids are really young, I mean, when they're a baby, right, they need like 20 hours of sleep. It's like a ton. And then it goes down and down and down and down and down. Most kids, by the time they reach like kindergarten age, need to be the equivalent of falling asleep at about 8 p.m. and then getting up at the equivalent about, you know, 6.30 or 7 p.m. So whatever that is, you know, 10 and a half hours or so um, of sleep. But there are certain kids who need significantly more sleep than others. In my book, in the Working Mom Blueprint, I actually have an entire table that goes through like at different ages, what are the amounts of sleep that people need. If you go through my programs on not getting kids emotions, there's an entire table on there. So you can see all that in the stuff that I have if you want to get real specific. And for free, the American Academy of Pediatrics, if you go to their website, healthychildren.org, they actually have amazing tables and information on sleep as well. That's free to all people. And that's a great site for like all things kids. Um, that said, like my daughter has always needed more sleep than other kids. She has always, when we like go on vacation in particular, we change time zones. It always takes her more like three or four days to get accustomed to that time zone versus my other kid who in like a day is totally accustomed to it. So I think for our kids who have autism or, you know, are um, differently wired, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how much they need. I would be looking for things like, are they able to get up in the morning without so much like stimulation? Are they having difficulty then like falling asleep the next night because they've slept too much? So now they like can't sleep at all. Um, are they able to go to school without having difficulty with falling asleep at school? So looking at kind of those individual markers with your kiddo in terms of sleep are the most important. Also, if they don't have enough sleep, you know, are they more cranky on certain days if they got more sleep or less sleep? So those are the things I would look at. But yeah, typically, you know, kindergarten age, about 10 and a half hours. And then I would say for kids who are in elementary school, about 10 hours, nine hours. And then do kids tend to kind of naturally adjust their sleep schedules? Like, is they need less sleep, they just sleep less, if that makes sense? Or do you have to like, like manually adjust their schedules for them? Well, I think it depends. You know, I think most kids, if they're getting enough, I, I know that if most kids are getting enough sunlight, natural sunlight, and activity, they will adjust on their own. They okay. will go to sleep on their own, they will feel like they're tired enough to go to sleep at an appropriate time for them. That said, we have screens that play into that. Mm -hmm. So if our kids are on screens, just like us, it's going to make it so we artificially and they artificially stay up longer than they need to. Also, for some kids who have autism, as you know, as I know, it can be hard sometimes to motivate kids to do activities maybe that other kids would want to do and to get outside and to be active. So that plays into it. And then 
Plus, you know, there's some of our kids with autism that have a lot of rocking behaviors before they go to sleep or a lot of self-stimming behaviors before they go to sleep. Some of those behaviors can actually be like sleep inducing for them. They use them to go to sleep, but some of them can be distracting from sleep. My daughter does that every night. She's like rocking. She knows the entire Hamilton soundtrack. She knows the entire like six, the musical soundtrack because she's been like rocking and rocking and rocking for months. And sometimes I have to go in and say, it's time to turn on something that's more like spa music, babe, because this is just going on for way too long. Yeah. So that that's, that's, that's cool. Cause I, I know like, uh, especially if kids have ADHD too, like I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with ADHD since we last talked actually. Oh. <laughs> and we'll explain so much of my life now. <laughs> um, but like, they can't sh like my kids especially would tell me like I just can't shut my brain off and yeah. that's how, that's what they would say like they just can't stop thinking and they'll yeah. lay in bed and just stare at the ceiling their brains just doing laps and uh, so those are those are also I think some challenges that uh, some of our kids yeah absolutely with. you know my favorite um, app which this is not like they don't pay me this is just my favorite app mm -hmm. that I tell every single patient about is called New Horizon Sleep Meditation. I love it because it's a meditation app for kids for getting to sleep, but it's not just like spa music or it's not just deep breathing. It actually tells a story, but mm -hmm. it's a very relaxing story. So I'll even use it if I'm on business trips by myself, I'll put it on, <laughs> um, but it's very kid appropriate, you know? So it's like about like you're going and you're on a rainbow and then you drop down into clouds or whatever. So for the kiddos who feel like their brain is just going a mile a minute, the sleep apps from New Horizon Sleep Meditation are amazing. And you can download the app for free. And then some of the meditations are free. Some of them you have to pay more for. And they have ones. This is part of what I love it about it. They have ones that are like eight to 10 hours long. So you could put it oh, on. Wow. Yeah. So then if a kid wakes up in the middle of the night, it's still it's playing. It's still playing. Yeah. So that way that sleep association, it doesn't mess them up. Because, you know, some for some of our kids, they can fall asleep to something. But then if it's not on when they wake up in the middle of the night, then they're going to have trouble in the middle of the night. And it, and it helps them to recognize when it's time to wake up or when it's time to, to yeah. go back to sleep. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, and this one's, I mean, this I, this one is a little more vague and I don't know how specific we can get, but like, what is the recommended bedtime routine for children? Like, is there a recommended like routine or an yeah. ideal routine? So I, I think it doesn't really matter exactly what your routine is. It just mm -hmm. matters that you have one. And there's a couple things you want to try to avoid close to sleep. So, um, I would avoid stimulating shows. As a pediatrician, if I was talking to people that weren't differently wired, I would say no screens, two hours before bedtime. That's what the American Academy of Pediatrics says. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but for kids who are differently wired, sometimes actually having screens, if it's something that's relaxing is better. And actually you can use it as a reward to earlier in the day, get them moving. I found, and then be able to have the screens later on. So to be able to say like, mm -hmm. well, if you get outside and you exercise after school, then you can chill out with your screens and that might back up to bedtime. Cause I don't want screens to be in the place of them being active. Like I don't want my kids to choose going on screens after school instead of going and playing at a friend's house or going and playing in our garden. Um, right. So screens at night that are not activating, not stimulating. So as soothing as possible in terms of screens, this is not a time for like video games, that type of thing. Um, lower lighting is helpful like an hour before bed and then some type of ritual. So that might be for your kid. They take a shower 
and they brush their teeth and they read their own book or you read a book to them if they're too young and then they go to sleep and they put on the sleep app. But for some kids, that might be more stimulating to have the shower. So maybe your kid is, they read the book, you put the lights down, they brush their teeth and then maybe you do like a shoulder shoulder massage for them or there's a song that they always listen to. So it doesn't have to be exactly the same. It's just that there needs to be some type of ritual that kind of tricks the brain or triggers the brain into realizing, oh, this is the time for me to go to sleep. And then, uh, well, you're saying that like my youngest, he was always, he was the challenge for me with sleep. And I would have to, he would want, he would want me to draw pictures on his back every night. And then he would try and guess what the pictures are and he would evolve. Eventually he was big into math and he would want me to do math problems on his back. And then he would figure out what the numbers were and do, and that, like that shut his brain off yeah. and then he could, he could go to sleep. And if, if we didn't do that, then he would lay in bed staring at the ceiling. Right. And, and it's maybe less important what the routine is as long as it becomes a routine that works uh, for their needs. Yeah, exactly. I think that's totally true. Okay. So the next question was how can I help my child establish a regular sleep schedule? Yeah. So especially as we move into summer months, but throughout the year, I think it's Mm -hmm. all about getting natural light, getting sunshine early enough in the day. It's about having that sleep ritual at night. And then the biggest thing actually is just about consistency of time. So it doesn't actually really matter what time zone your kid is on, as long as they're on the same time zone all the time. So This is what I mean. If I flew today to New York City, then I would be like three hours ahead from where I am now on the West Coast. And then let's say I came back and then I flew to, you know, uh, Texas and then I'd be two hours. And then I came back and I was back for two days. Then my body is super, super confused as to when I'm supposed to be sleeping and I'll have a hard time sleeping, going to sleep and waking up. If I stay on Pacific time and I go to the sleep at the same time on Pacific time every single night, then my body knows what it wants to do. So I'm, I'm less concerned, especially in the summer with what time kids go to bed. I'm more concerned with them actually just going to bed at the same time or the sleep routine starting at the same time every night, um, Mm -hmm. or the sleep ritual. And also remember that it takes about like seven days or so, sometimes even longer for it to click. So if you're trying to establish a new sleep routine and a new schedule with your kiddo, and it doesn't happen in the first two or three days, do not give up. It takes a while. Um, And we'll talk in a minute about like sleep aids to try to get kids to sleep on a new routine. When you're trying to establish a new schedule for them, that can be a great time to use sleep aids if appropriate and with your specific child after you've talked to their pediatrician, because Mm -hmm. it will allow them then to ease into that schedule a little more easily. Okay. And so I do want to ask this because this is in, I don't know if your daughter experiences this or not, but like time change, like when we go to like daylight savings time or bounce out of daylight savings time is an absolute nightmare Yeah, for my kids. I mean, even just that hour throws them off and it takes them forever. It feels like it takes them forever to adjust to that. I mean, I hate time change anyways, but like, is there, is there ways to help them adjust to that type of 
change? Yeah, it's terrible. I hate daylight savings as well. If there was some bill to stop daylight savings, I would. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think they're I think they're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean they should. You know? It's terrible, especially for kids like ours. So um, the biggest thing is actually before the time change starts is to adjust their sleep schedule forward or back in like 15 minute increments if you can for the couple mm-hmm. of days leading up to it. So, you know, let's say the time change is going to be that you're jumping forward, you know, an hour, then you would move the bedtime forward 15 minutes, maybe do that for like two days, then do 30 minutes forward two days. And your kids might be a little crankier, a little tired for those two days, but it should make it so that once you actually reach the change, they don't even notice a difference um, very much at all. So I, I like to front load it. I'd rather have it front loaded than deal with the whole hour worth of On the back end. Yeah. That, that's a good idea. That's really it's all about feeling like you're in control, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good idea. Cause I get, I get so many questions about that or just people complaining about how that disrupts their kids routine. And it's such a simple thing, but it's like, you know, prepping yeah. them ahead of time, a little bit at a time so that they just sort of seamlessly transition. And then the clocks will match up with what their sleep cycle is. Yeah. And then we can all, you know, Exactly. Oh, the other tip I have for that is on the day that the sleep change occurs, I actually like just I change the clocks like ahead of time. <laughs> so the kids don't know that it's happening. So like I I am like tricky with my clocks. Like, that's fine. That's a like little white lie that doesn't hurt anybody to have the clocks be mm-hmm. a little forward or a little backward. <laughs> yeah, well it makes it e- it makes it easier for them. Right, exactly. And then it's it's less confusing until yeah. they fix it and make it go away forever cuz that should happen. Uh, okay. So the next one is about naps. Um, are naps like how important are naps for a child's sleep routine? And like at what, like at what age should they stop napping? Okay. So I'll say it this way. I care more about nighttime sleep than I do naps. So a lot of the kids in my practice will either be great nighttime sleepers or they'll be great nappers, but then terrible nighttime sleepers. So the people with like good nighttime sleep, they always complain about the naps, but they're not the ones with bags under their eyes, you know? So if those people, they're like, oh, my kid doesn't really nap, but they seem pretty happy during the day. Or they only nap for five minutes, but they seem happy during the day and they sleep all night long. Amazing. Your kid's just not a good napper. Who cares? Move on, you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. think about the fact that back in the day, I mean, you know, like hundreds of years ago, how would a child nap? You wouldn't be like in their own crib for hours and hours while you sat there like doing like, you know, they wouldn't have computers, but you know, writing a letter to someone, they would be on your back. They'd be going around with you. They would be like taking little cat naps all day long. So Mm -hmm. um, for those types of people, that's what I recommend is just like, don't sweat it. If your kiddo is a great napper, but a terrible nighttime sleeper, then I actually suggest capping the naps. So making it so that they are a bit shorter, um, usually no longer than an hour if you're having multiple naps. Um, if you're having one big long nap, making sure that it doesn't occur or an end um, before 1 p.m. So that way your kiddo has enough time to get tired again and to also have some natural sunlight before it's time for them to go to bed again. So a lot of times the issue is the naps are too long if you're having good naps, but then terrible nighttime sleep. If your child okay. is a bad napper and a bad sleeper, like mine was, <laughs> then that you know you just do your best. And I always just try to get in one solid nap. So like 
I would have one nap where I would take her in the stroller and use movement as my aid and really get in a really nice long nap or, you know, go around to the car or whatever. And the rest of the time I'd be like, okay, we'll just try our best. But again, always my goal was the best nighttime sleep possible. So the naps were always in service of nighttime, trying to get her to sleep just a little bit. So that way she wasn't so overly tired that she couldn't sleep Mm -hmm. all night. Okay. So you prioritize the nighttime sleep over the nap during the day. Okay. That's good. That's good. And I, you know, I also noticed like with my, my middle child, he's 17 and even still he struggles with sleep, but he'll, he'll take naps during the day. And I'm like, you can't like, you're not going to sleep for like four hours and then wake up and then expect to be able to go to sleep at a decent time and then sleep through the night. Like it's, it just throws off his whole. Yeah. So I, I totally, totally get that. I just wish he would. Um, it's hard when they get older too, because they get more. Oh yeah, you have less control over once they're older. <laughs> um, okay, so what are what are some common sleep problems that that you hear from parents, uh, maybe in your practice or just in in general? Yeah, you know the biggest issues that people usually divide sleep problems into are sleep initiation, so difficulties falling asleep, difficulties okay. staying asleep, so sleep inertia or difficulties with getting quality sleep. If you feel like your kid is getting enough sleep, but they end up feeling really tired during the day, a couple things that you can look for, um, sleep apnea. So that's when your kids are like stopping breathing in the middle of the night. They might be someone who snores a lot. If you're not sure if they are, you could put like your phone in there and just hit record on voice notes and see if they snore. Um, But apnea sounds like this, like... So like you stop breathing for that second. It's like they're holding their breath. And sometimes that can be an issue with their tonsils and adenoids, or there can be other issues. So um, the first step that I do as a pediatrician is usually to refer someone to an ear, nose, and throat specialist so that mm-hmm. they can evaluate the tonsils and adenoids. And so they can also see if it'd be appropriate for them to have a sleep study um, where they okay. have them in the hospital. They can see it's very quick. It sounds bigger than it is, but they can see kind of what their sleep patterns and what's going on for them. For sleep inertia, that's a lot of times where people will use sleep aids. And that's usually for these kids, like you were talking about, who feel like, gosh, my mind is racing all the time. I can't get to sleep. One thing I do want to make sure that parents pay attention to is sometimes if a kid has anxiety um, underlying as their main issue or overlying, if they have anxiety or have autism or ADHD, anxiety can sometimes kind of rear its ugly head the most at night because our bodies slow down. Mm -hmm. We're not doing other things. We're not distracted. So if you're thinking about they have difficulty falling asleep, do kind of consider, could this be something about anxiety? Your pediatrician can help with that. A therapist can help with that to see, is that part of it? Um, And then the middle of the night sleeping, a few things that can cause that can be if a kiddo is having restless leg syndrome, which can come sometimes from iron deficiency, they don't have quite enough. So if you're ever sleeping with your kids, like on vacation, and you notice they're moving their legs all the time. That's one thing to kind of look for. Um, or if like the temperature of the room is too hot. Um, if the kids are uncomfortable in that way, that can be difficult. Or if they have a sleep association. So this is what we were talking about. Like, let's say you have an app that goes on and it only gets them to sleep, but that's the only way they're able to fall asleep. And then the app's not on in the middle of the night. We mm. all wake up in the middle of the night multiple times a night. That's just part of being a human. And so for some people, if that app isn't on in the middle of the night, it can be very difficult to fall back asleep. So 
whatever you're using as kind of your sleep aid, if it's not a medication, at the beginning of the night, it's important to make sure it keeps on going. If it's like white noise, meditation, the blankets that are on, you know, like kind of the weight of blankets, any of those things. Okay. Um, so the next one is, is it okay for children to have nightlights or sleep with like stuffed animals uh, on their bed? Yeah. So um, below the age of one, we never recommend anything else in the crib um, other than a firm mattress and a fitted sheet. So that's a safety thing to prevent sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't put anything else in the bed for that. Um, after the age of one, if your baby's able to sit up and like pull the stand on their own, then usually having a small stuffy in there is fine. If you want to have a stuffy in the kid's bed when the kids are older and that's like a comfort thing or a lovey, absolutely. You know, no problem with having that in the bed with them. Um, in terms of the nightlight, you just want to make sure that the type of light is correct. You want to make sure that it's like the nice, soft, warm, like yellow light, not a blue light that's going to cause more problems for them. Um, yeah. Overall, most of the sleep experts recommend like as little light as possible in the room um, for sleep. But I know that can be difficult, especially if a kiddo does have anxiety and part of the anxiety is about sleeping in, in the bed dark. themselves. Or f- afraid of the dark. Yeah, That's, exactly. Like if they're afraid yeah. of the dark or they're afraid of sleeping by themselves, then sometimes it's like trade-offs and benefits, which – that's the biggest takeaway that I've learned, honestly, as a parent versus being a pediatrician primarily, is every single decision we make as parents is about trade-offs and benefits. So while there are strict guidelines, even the things that I'm telling you today, you know your own individual child. So if I'm telling mm-hmm. you, you know, light's not as good, but you know if they don't have any light, then they're going to stay up all night because they're scared, then put a tiny nightlight, you know? That's, that's your yeah. authority to do. Yeah, everybody's... You know, every, every, every person is different. Every kid's needs are different. And, you know, when, when people ask for advice, like it's, it's tough to cater it to fit every person's needs. So it's more kind of like a general statement in general, these are things that you can do. And then you customize it to make it work, uh, best for your kid. You know, it just gives you kind of a place to start and a, and a, and a baseline. And I think you can customize it and build whatever, whatever it is from there. So, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Mightier. Mightier is a biofeedback-based video game platform that teaches kids to emotionally self-regulate. This leads to a significant reduction in meltdowns and parental stress. It's backed by science out of Harvard Medical and Boston Children's and has helped over 100,000 kids. For more information, visit theautismdad.com forward slash Mightier. That's theautismdad.com forward slash M-I-G-H-T-I-E-R and use the code theautismdad22 to save 10%. Um, okay. This is another big one that I get from a lot of parents. How can I create a sleep friendly environment in my child's bedroom? So when your child is little, like under the age of one, really safety is the most important thing when it comes to sleep friendly, right? Because like, yeah, yeah, like nothing else matters more than safety. So that fitted sheet, the firm, breathable mattress, nothing else within the crib, making sure that there's good airflow in your room. Um, The temperature that most pediatricians recommend is somewhere like 72 degrees. And that actually is true even for older kids at 72 degrees and for adults um, tends to be a a temperature that actually works pretty well um, and isn't too cold or or too hot. And everybody's different. Like I like to have it colder and have lots of covers on me, but some people don't like that. Um, Mm -hmm. 
blackout shades can be extremely helpful, especially if you live in a place that um, is more northern latitude, like where I live in Portland, Oregon, stays light really long here. So using blackout shades at night can be a really effective way to kind of get that sleep routine going. You can have like soft, mellow light and do kind of your bedtime ritual in that room. And you really need about an hour or so, hour, hour and a half for your brain to be able to start getting into kind of more mellow, mellow timing. Um, I was in Iceland this year and I, I, you know, they don't have any breaks in the sunlight. So it's, it's light like all year round. And I was asking the people there what they do with their kids. Like, oh yeah, we use blackout shades like all the time. We have the best blackout shades. We use like three, three blackout shades, you know, (laughs) one over each other. Um, And they have really like intense bedtime rituals because they have to. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you just want to manage the environment as best you can in a, in a way that is appropriate for your child's age. And when they're, when they're little tiny, like babies, uh, the priority is safety over anything else. Yeah, it definitely. And as they get older, you know, I think the biggest thing is don't fall prey to all of these new fangled things that are out there as gadgets and gear. I, I really think that like, when it comes down to it, there are some kids who just have more trouble sleeping than others. And I hate for parents to go spend like so much money on Amazon on all these things that like promise amazing sleep and they're not going to. Sure, try out the weighted blanket. Sure, try out a noise machine. We can get that on your phone now, you know? Try to go mm-hmm. for like the cheapest version of it possible for the kids that are not in those early, early stages. Um, but remember, if you feel like you've kind of like done all of the searching for all the products and it's still not working. It's not probably that you haven't found the right product. It's probably that you just have a kid like mine who over time will learn how to sleep effectively. You know, when they're an adult, they'll learn, but it's just going to have a little bit harder time. So then you might have to make some adjustments in terms of your perspective and also use some other things like the meditation apps or like white noise or like a longer sleep ritual or like more activity during the day, all those types of things. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and then I guess kind of the next, we, we sort of talked about the next couple of questions, but we'll just, I'll, I'll ask you anyways. Uh, so the, the next one is, um, how do you know if electronics and screens are affecting your child's sleep? So I would say that for the vast majority of Americans, screens are affecting all of our sleep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The recommendation is no more than two hours a day of screen time. The most recent studies that have come out about Americans show that we check our devices at least 80 times a day for adults. I mean, that's like, we, you know, and that's not even that much when you divide it like into the hours of awake time, let's say like 10 hours, eight times an hour. Like, sure. I check my phone eight times an hour, you know, even if it's just looking at a notification that popped up. So that sounds like a lot, but I, if you're thinking that's not me, it probably is you. Um, so it affects all of us. It affects our kids. So what can we do about it? One, I find it very difficult with my kids who in part because they're so differently wired are so freaking smart and they can like, they can get me. So they're like, Oh, well, we had a little bit of screen time. So we how about just like 10 minutes more because of this. So we're playing something educational. You know, my kids love Minecraft. Sounds like your kids like that too, Rob. So like, you know, they're they, like, oh, this is something educational. 
So what I've had to do in my family, and there's times where I've been really good about this and times where I haven't had the bandwidth to be able to implement it, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest and, you know, uh, transparent people. Um, but it, I've been the most effective and they've had the best relationship with screens when I've said you get one weekday a week with screens where it's like for three hours or so at night. And then on the weekends, you can pick two days of the weekend. You can pick a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like some combination of the three of those where you get to have screens. And on those days, it's a bit of more of a free for all once we get to like 5 p.m. You know, just be mm-hmm. active. And then at 5 p.m., you can settle in and have as much screens as you want on those two days. Um, the other thing that I found super effective for the kids in my practice who have autism in particular and who and ADHD who really love screens, who like get a big dopamine rush from screens, is to tie screens into movement. So you can get, I've gotten like a cheap treadmill. We have one in my house that costs 100 bucks. And we put it in the garage and... I, I'm like, okay, if you want to watch screens, then you need to be moving. <laughs> and so it, it's not a hundred percent like counterbalance, but at least it's making it so that like, if they want to do something, it has to be, has to be on something where they're moving at the same time to try to make it so that it affects sleep less because at least they're getting more movement, moving their bodies. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, uh, kind of like dangling a carrot, right? Like, yeah, but you, it, it you do, works. You yeah. It works and the kids love it. I mean, the kids, you know, there's a, there's a limit to it. You know, I'm not going to have my kids be on a treadmill for five hours a day, but, but for 30 minutes, sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and then if they want to be off and I'm like, okay, cool, take a break. But 30 minutes of the screen time needs to be that you're moving. Your first 30 minutes has to be that you're moving on a treadmill. Yeah. There, you know, I think when, when, when you're raising neurodivergent kids, I mean, parenting in general, but like, especially when you're raising neurodivergent kids, there's a lot of outside the box thinking that you have to do yeah. in order to create solutions for problems that don't have simple answers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of adults that will, they have like, um, what, like treadmill desks or something now yeah. where you can like, you have like the standing desk and you got a treadmill underneath it and you just learn to do your work while you're walking on the treadmill all day or something. Yeah. I mean, and that's, it's very similar to that. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would say is just, paying attention. And again, this is a hard one because you can't always be in the exact same room as your kids. And my kids know how to turn back on YouTube, even when I've tried to block it on the you know internet, yep. um, is watching what they're watching, like trying to just like get a sense of it. And this is, I don't mean that you stand over their shoulder and you watch every single episode of everything. I mean, like there's this one show my kid was watching on YouTube, hate to single her out, but really no one should watch her. It's called Rebecca Zamalo. Rebecca Zamalo. She's this lady and she's so frantic and like kind of yelling the whole time. And like the content wasn't anything violent or wasn't anything like over-sexualized or anything like that, but it just was not what I knew would be good for my kids' brains as Mm -hmm. they tried to exist in the world. And also as they tried to sleep, because it just created that kind of like hecticness in their brains. And so I would hear it from the other room. And finally I had to like, really put the kibosh on that. So just pay attention, like have your ears open to what it sounds like. Does it, is it stressing you out? Then it's probably not good for your kids' brains. I have to do that all the time. Cause they, they watch these things that, I mean, there's no value, like there's no real value to it outside yeah. of being entertaining. And it's so overstimulating, yes. you know, all the, all the, the screaming and the yelling and the running around and 
And I get that it gets views and they make a lot of money doing that, but it's also not, there, there's no, there's no value to it. I mean, like they're not going to be better. They're not going to be smarter. They're not going to sleep better because they've watched it. It's just going to get them amped up and make it harder for them to settle down at the end of the day. And, uh, they don't like it, but I, even, even as they're older, um, I like, I won't let them watch it on the TV. If they're watching on their phones and whatever, but like, I don't want, I don't want to hear it because it stresses me out just hearing it in the background. (laughs) Totally. Oh man. Um, okay. So how, um, okay. How can I handle bedtime resistance or difficulty falling asleep? And we're going to touch on some of the, the other stuff in just a second. But in general, like when your kid refuses to go to bed, like how do you how do you address that? So when kids are really little, so when kids are under the age of one, a lot of times people will use methods and I'm not promoting or saying they're bad, but methods like, you know, cry it out or the Ferber method where they'll go in and they'll pat them and then they'll wait five minutes and they'll go in. The thing that I actually suggest, and this is from a book called It's Never Too Late to Sleep Train. For the kids who are like toddler and up who don't want to sleep are, um, and it doesn't work as well, of course, once your kids get to like elementary school age, because again, they can like kind of outsmart us a bit, like they don't really care about the reward, but it's to actually <laughs> do the reverse. So instead of you saying, you have to just stay here by yourself and I'll come back in five minutes, it's to say, hey, I'm going to have you stay in here for one minute. If you're sad, that's okay. If you're happy, that's okay. If you want to just be quiet, whatever, it's all right. I will, I promise I will come back. And when I come back, I will bring you a prize and you bring them whatever you guys have decided on a sticker, a little tiny ring from target, you know, not ring like fancy, but like from the prize section, Yeah. target. Okay. Then you go, okay, awesome. You did it. Woo. Celebration. Okay. Two minutes. I'll be back. Okay. And you actually do it five minutes. I'll be back 10 minutes, 15. Okay. You keep on going. This is an investment from a parent standpoint, but it's worth it. At some point, after you've lengthened it out, they will fall asleep. Now, the thing that you have to do once they've actually fallen asleep is to actually go in and you tell them this beforehand. If you happen to fall asleep, I will bring you the prize. And you leave the prize on their pillow and they have the prize there when they wake up and they know that you kept good to your word. And then the next day, you lengthen it out. Instead of it being one minute for the first time, you make it three minutes for the first time and then and so on. And this, will, again, it could take like a week for this to work. But it's like the positive reinforcement of them being able to do it instead of what the natural inclination is for everyone, including pediatricians like me, which is to be like, okay, fall asleep and I'll be back. And then not come back (laughs) at all. Like go along your merry way, you know? Or you just forget. Yeah, exactly. So it's reverse sleep training, basically. It's like giving them a prize, a positive reward for them, handling the discomfort of being in the room by themselves. That, that is really interesting. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. It totally works. Now, again, uh, once your kids are like in elementary school, like my kids, they would be like, I don't care. We don't want the prize. I'm not going to sleep. You know what I mean? So then sometimes I'll have to use a consequence. Like, well, listen, if you can't go to sleep, then tomorrow you were planning on going to your friend's house for a play date. Like we can't go to play date. If you can't just be in your room and be quiet, you don't have to fall asleep, but you need to be in your room resting with the yeah. lights out, not with a device. Cause you're kind of enforcing the importance of having that rest in order yeah. to be able to, you know, be ready for that play date or, exactly. or whatever. And exactly. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's yeah. a really good idea. Yeah. 
I can't send you to the play date tomorrow. And it's, it wouldn't be a punishment. It's just that you're not going to be at your best. And I don't want you to go to a friend's house and then feel like sad about your behavior when you're at your friend's house. That won't work, you know? Okay. That, that, yeah, I like that. That's a really good, I wish we'd had this conversation like <laughs> 10 years, years ago. ago. I wouldn't yeah, have known the wow. answers then. I only know it because oh, of parent. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's that's true. But like, I would have I would have really liked having this knowledge a long time ago. So I'm hoping that anybody out there listening is benefiting from this at this point. Uh, okay. So the last sleep question like this was: um, Should you be concerned if your child is snoring or experiencing other breathing issues during sleep? So we kind of talked about the sleep apnea a little bit, but like sometimes kids are just weird, like when they're sleeping. But like, is like at what point? As a parent, should you be concerned? Yeah. So snoring itself is okay. If your kiddo snores, especially if they're snoring after they've gotten um, sick, that's okay. Um, there's a couple other things, though, to look out for. Um, bruxism, which is where the kids are, like, grinding their teeth. It sounds like, you know, nails on a chalkboard. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. That can be sometimes just when they're teething, they'll do that for a short period of time. So if it, it's lasting just for, like, a week or so, I wouldn't worry about it. But if it's lasting for longer than that, it can actually be a sign of stress. Um, so that's something to maybe talk to your dentist about, about like night guards that you can put on their teeth so they don't hurt their teeth during that. And then also just to think about what might be other causes of stress, about how you can get better exercise, about ways that you can kind of give them some special time and give them attention to those issues. But the snoring itself is okay. It's just when it's attached to the apnea, when it's like, <sighs> or if you find that they're snoring all the time, and in the morning, they've slept the appropriate amount of time that you would expect, but they're totally tired. Then again, that might be another moment for an ear, nose, and throat evaluation, and your pediatrician can put in that referral. Okay. Um, all right. So, like, before we jump into these melatonin questions, can we just sort of talk briefly about what melatonin actually is? Because it's a naturally occurring uh, substance in the body. Like, your, mm -hmm. your body creates it naturally, and then you have the supplements. So, like, what... What is melatonin? Yeah. So melatonin is a hormone that our body creates that basically helps to set the circadian rhythm in our body. So it helps to let our body know like it's time for rest, it's time for sleep, or it's mm -hmm. time to wake up. Um, and it's produced at a you know, certain time of the day in order to make it so that our bodies are basically preparing for sleep. So it's usually like about an hour or two hours before we actually go to sleep that melatonin um, kind of is created in our body or starts to kick in more in our body. So it's something that's a naturally occurring hormone that our body creates to basically let our body know, okay, now is the time for sleep. And our melatonin gets messed up, of course, when we're traveling, when there's time changes, all of those different things. Okay. Um, all right. These are the last three questions that everybody really talks about. So when it comes to sleep aids for kids, the most common form is melatonin. Yeah. And so the top three questions that I have for this, uh, the first one is, is melatonin safe for children in, in general? Yeah. So in general, when used appropriately, melatonin can be an amazing sleep aid for children especially kids who are neurodivergent. And mm -hmm. it is recommended by sleep experts. I've taken my own kid to a sleep expert, to a sleep consultant at, you know, you know, Oregon Health and Sciences University. And that's one of the one of the medications that they recommended for her. So yes, in situations where it's appropriate, it can be absolutely safe. And again, 
every single medication that we give kids, Tylenol, ibuprofen, Benadryl, like every single thing always has risks and benefits. But in the population that we're talking about for autistic kiddos, melatonin can be very helpful if kids are having a very, very difficult time sleeping. And it can be helpful in other situations for kids as well. Okay. And if you have questions or you're concerned, talk to your pediatrician about it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, people come to me all the time and ask about melatonin. And there are some kids where I can tell that there are other things we could be doing first. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, we could be getting the kid more exercise. They don't exercise at all. We could be getting the kid on more of a sleep routine. We could be trying things like meditation apps or um, like weighted blankets or like white noise or like blackout curtains. I mean, like there's a bunch of other things that you can try before melatonin. Um, For kids in general, what I normally say to kids, to parents is, You want to limit for all medications, the amount that you use of medications as much as possible. That's like the physician thing to say the least amount, the less often as possible for medications. So Mm -hmm. I'll say start no matter how old your kid is with like half a milligram of melatonin, the smallest amount possible or one milligram. Um, One thing I'll tell people, if you're going to use melatonin, I really recommend more of the tablet form that you can either swallow or chew versus the gummies. I have found that the gummies are often covered in sugar, like straight up to mm-hmm. sugar. So you're giving those at night and then, you know, you might be brushing your kids' teeth, you know, depending on the day. And so then you could have the risk of cavities. So use tablets or use the ones that you can swallow. And then just use the smallest amount possible. And for some kids, they only need melatonin, like the smallest little whiff of it, for three or four days while you do all the sleep routine things that are going to help them get into the zone to be, you know, uh, adjusting on that time zone change or adjusting on the daylight savings time change or whatever. So use it really, really infrequently. Um, But your pediatrician knows your kid. Your pediatrician knows all about all the different facets. They can, they're trained. We're trained in like the art and the science of looking at all the different factors, all the risks, all the benefits, and then telling you specifically how much and if it's appropriate for you to use melatonin. Okay. And so the idea is that melatonin can be part of a healthy sleep hygiene, but not, it doesn't replace or fix an unhealthy sleep. So like if there's, if, if your child has, you know, they're playing games all night or their room is in a way that it's like not conducive for sleep, melatonin is not necessarily the right approach. You want to adjust the things like lifestyle changes to help improve where you can. And then melatonin is there to help you when you need it, not yeah. to just take the place of proper sleep hygiene. So exactly. That, that's, I mean, I think about it like this, like, okay, we were talking about screens and video games and stuff, you know, um, my youngest daughter, like, she was in the pandemic like everybody else totally watching too many screens like addicted to it like couldn't get off of it huge major meltdowns when i told her she had to stop you know guiding my phone all these things right okay Mm -hmm. her attention span was very low her behavior was very adhd like the first step though that i had to take before i could undergo an adhd evaluation was to limit the screens because like even if I had given her medications for ADHD, 
they would not have worked if she was still like having all that exposure from the screens. So Mm -hmm. yeah, you got to do what you need to do first. Like make sure your kids are getting nutrition, make sure they're hydrated, make sure that you have the right sleep routine for them. Do your best on that front. And then if it still feels like a medication like melatonin, or there are others that the sleep experts will recommend sometimes could be of help to you, then go talk to your pediatrician. And if they do recommend it for your specific child, there's been a lot of stuff in the in the media about melatonin. Don't be scared to use it according to the recommendation of your pediatrician. Because the benefits at that point, based on their recommendation, will outweigh the inherent risks. Yeah. And and sleep is so important. We're kind of talking about this before we were recording, but sleep is so important. And, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep or that quality sleep, then like you almost, you have no idea what's what, right? right. If you're depressed or you're anxious or whatever, if you're yeah. not sleeping, that's the first place that you have to start. You know, th- that'll be like one of the first questions that like you as a pediatrician would ask, like, how are they sleeping? Well, they're yeah. not. Okay. Well, let's start there because yeah, exactly. we can't go anywhere else until we figure out what's going on there. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really good advice. Um, and we kind of talked about this, but like, what is the appropriate dosage of melatonin for children, or is there an appropriate dosage? Yeah. So if you read the labels on the back of the melatonin bottles, for example, it'll usually say something like, you know, one milligram for three years to about five years, and then about two milligrams for five years to seven years, and then like three and up. Um, but every kid's different. So I've I've used in some kids, like I usually, like I said, start really low because parents are usually really worried about it. So I'll start at, you know, half a milligram. If it's a kid who's literally up, the parents are doing their absolute best on sleep hygiene. And this kid is like up all night long and they're a neurodivergent kiddo. And like, we know that they have to be on other medications for behavioral things as well, you know, guanfacine Mm -hmm. and risperidone or all the other things. Then I'm not worried about starting at a slightly higher dose because again, the risks of them not getting sleep are so much higher than a parent who comes into me who has a neurotypical kiddo who says like, well, they have a little hard time falling asleep and we're doing all the things, but like eventually they go to sleep and it's just annoying for us because we can't watch our favorite show. You know, then those families <laughs> are like, okay, well then let's just start with like half a milligram, see if it makes a difference and really please limit it to just a couple days while you try to get more of your routine going. So yeah, so I would say, follow the advice that's on the back of the bottles, you know, the recommendation doses. But again, this is a place where your pediatrician can customize exactly what their recommendation is for you. Okay. Um, Are there potential side effects or long-term risks associated with using melatonin in children? So the big thing that people worry about is dependence, number one, that people, if, you know, because melatonin is a hormone that your body makes naturally. So If you're replacing melatonin for people or giving extra melatonin, that your body will basically decide it doesn't want to make any melatonin on its own because it already has enough, right? So there is an inherent risk there that if your child is taking melatonin for an extended period of time, that your child's body will say, oh, I need the outside source because it's not going to make as much. And so if you were to go off melatonin, unless you've only been on it for a few days, usually weaning it down um, is the way to go as opposed to like cold turkey. Yeah. And then the other big thing that people worry about, um, which really the jury's still out on like definitive answers, is because melatonin is a hormone, people worry about puberty 
development with it and its effects on the endocrine system. And there's still studies to come, you know, on that again. Um, we don't know exactly what the like long-term effects are going to be of long-term melatonin use, um, in those areas. But again, it's about looking at your entire picture. I know for my patients where the parents have lost so much sleep themselves, the parents are, if there's two of them unable to sleep in like bed together and have their own like time there, special time there together. Um, they're yelling at their kids every single night to get to sleep. They feel frustrated in the morning. Their kids aren't sleeping. So now they're having major behavioral issues. They're missing school. They're unable to participate in anything academically or in out of school extracurricular activities. Those families, the damage it's going to do to them and to that kid, because the family system is so contentious and everybody is so stressed well, we know our body is going to create cortisol, which is another hormone that our body yep. creates. So again, I'm always just looking at big picture like, well, yes, for every single kid, do I want them on melatonin? No, because I don't know. And we don't know as a community, like exactly what are going to be the permutations of it. But for the kids who really need it, and you can see the obvious positive effect that it has and the obvious negative circumstances that these families are living in when they're not using it. Do I use melatonin as a tool sometimes? 100%. And would I as a parent use melatonin? And do I use melatonin with my own autistic kid as a result of that? 100%. Awesome. And I, yeah. And I think like with any medication and like melatonin, you can get it over the counter. I know I just did an interview with uh, a major insurance, Medicaid insurance provider in Ohio. Doctor can write a script and you can get it through insurance, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's lots of options. Um, but you know, I've always been of the mind that, you know, the right medication for the right reasons for the right child provided by the right doctor can make a significant change in quality of life, you know? And, and if, uh, yeah. And, and you just, you start, you start low and you just, if you have to gradually increase and you increase until you find that sweet spot where it's helping them. And then you just make sure that all of the other things that, you have control over are, you know, uh, is conducive for quality sleep as possible. I think, yeah. I think that's totally reasonable. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. uh, thank you so much yeah. for being here and for taking the time to do this and kind of working through some of the technical, you know, hiccups along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I really hope that this can be a resource, uh, for parents and for all the moms out there who, uh, are interested in connecting with you, What's the best way that they can do that? Yeah. So the absolute best way is to go to modernmommydoc.com and you'll find there my one-on-one coaching services. And I specialize really in moms who have neurodivergent kids because I know that struggle. But even for moms who don't, I'm absolutely able to help. I'm not a therapist, so we don't go through like all of your origin story and like all those things. <laughs> it's really about, although I'll listen to it if you want me to. It's it's really what I do is three sessions, one hour each, and we walk through what are your individual pain points, what are the individual things that are making it so that you're not able to focus in on what matters most to you. What are the things that are weighing you down? What are the things that are keeping you from kind of getting to the core of the life that you're supposed to have? 
And then I give you all the resources and all the back end stuff so you can see our entire framework. But we spend time just going through your individual things. I used to actually do like group coaching with people and I found that it just wasn't enough, especially for the parents of neurodivergent kids, because yeah, everybody has their own story, everybody has their own struggles, everybody has their own pain points, and there's so much fear of being judged, like the story that I told in the very beginning. And, um, and yes, I try to really provide a safe space where people can like just lay it all out there. And then I can help with resources without any of that drama of being judged or feeling like you're not doing it right. Okay. So I I will have all of that information in the show notes and in the blog post that people can uh, connect with you and, and check out what you're doing and get whatever help that they may need. Uh, thank you again for everything. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. I get so many questions about sleep and, this was this was very helpful. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Real quick, before I let you go, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and it has a positive impact on your life because that's what I'm aiming for here. As a reminder, you can visit listen.theautismdent.com. You can learn about me and anything related to the show. You can subscribe on any one of your favorite podcast listening apps so you never miss a new episode. And please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. There'll be a link in the show notes below for you just to click and it'll take you right there. It takes like 30 seconds and it makes a big difference. So it's a great way to support the show and uh, help keep the wheels turning. So have a great week and we'll talk soon.